Connection Unpacked, where we discuss the pull of the past every week. I'm your host, Allison Treat. I'm an author of historical fiction and a freelance editor. Welcome to my show. Hey there, welcome to episode eight of Historical Fiction Unpacked. Today I'll be speaking with Brian Litfin. His latest book, The Conqueror, released on Tuesday of this week, October 13th, 2020. He is known as the author of the Shavice Trilogy, as well as several works of nonfiction. He's also a former professor of theology at the Moody Bible Institute. We had a great conversation about bringing the adventure of ancient Rome to life. Brian has the unique position of learning about ancient Rome through his work in academia. So a lot of his research was done before he even began writing his novels. I had a lot of fun talking to Brian about his book, and I know you guys are going to enjoy this conversation too. So let's get started. Brian Litvin, welcome to Historical Fiction Unpacked. Great to be here. Thank you, Allison. Thanks. Your latest book, The Conqueror, which is releasing October 13th, that's about a week from the date we're recording this, but it'll be... Um, it'll be in the past when I release this episode. Um, but it's been called a vivid and cinematic page turner that promises to transport readers onto the front lines of the tumultuous rise of imperial Christianity. Sounds exciting. Can you tell us about this novel? Yeah, that's a a great summary. I'm not exactly sure who (laughs) produced it, but it makes me want to read it. (laughs) (laughs) That's a book I'd take off the shelf and and read if I saw it in the library. But uh, yeah, it's it's set in a pivotal period of of history. It's set in the fourth century AD. So that's still within the Roman Empire, but it's the time when the Roman Empire is sort of ending its phase where it was hostile to the Christian religion and the early Christians and decides to sort of switch over and embrace that faith. And of course, there was a lot of uh, tumultuous uh, wars and battles and exciting events and important events in church history. And so this novel takes place in that time, which I think is relatively unexplored in terms of historical fiction. So I'm really grateful to be able to do that. Yeah, it's great. Um, It actually arrived at my house last night, so I haven't had a chance to read it yet. But when I unwrapped it, it just, um, it looks amazing. It's, I have the hardcover in my hand and my my 10-year-old son was like, ooh, that looks good. But I, I think it's probably a little advanced for him. Maybe. But he just loves adventure well, stories. Well, and, and I don't know if 10-year-old, I mean, that wasn't really the age that I wrote it for. But I will say... It's interesting that your son saw that. And one of the things I think is true of this book is that, you know, guys will like it, boys and men. And it's a book I think that women will like because it has, you know, a lot of the the great aspects there. But it's also one they could hand to their husband, to their boyfriend, to their dad and say, hey, dad, you don't maybe always read fiction or hey, honey, you know, you, you don't always love novels, but this is one you might like. And so I think when your son kind of gravitated to it, it's because there's a kind of masculine, adventurous nature to the book that I think people will like. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think there are not enough books like that, perhaps especially in the Christian market. So I'm really happy to see that you're doing that. 
Yeah, they tend to be kind of the bonnets and, and sort of soft reeds and things like that. And this is not a soft reed. It's the hard edge of steel reed. <laughs> it's the gladius kind of reed. You know, it's got swords and, and uh, wars and battles. I don't want to overplay that. It's not full of gore, but um, it's definitely a, a, a sword and horse kind of story and also a romance. And it has those aspects, too. Nice. That's great. So how did you come up with the idea for this novel? Well, you know, um, I guess in some ways I'm I'm different than than maybe a lot of historical fiction writers, in that my my day job and what I was doing before I wrote any novels was to be a, a professor, and so I have a PhD in early Christianity, which is when this is set, and I've been exploring that right. you know professionally and in a scholarly way and making presentations and, and writing books even about about the ancient Christians. So, you know, it, it was kind of natural to say that this story that I know so much about and love so much, and, and it's kind of the, these stories are just within me. It was a little bit natural to say, all right, well, let's, let's, let's make that into a novel because there's plenty here that can be turned into fiction for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you've written nonfiction and some fantasy novels in the past, I imagine it was a little different writing historical fiction set during the Roman Empire. How did that, the writing process differ for you? Well, you know, it's interesting. I mean, you called the other novels fantasy, and there's a sense in which they are. Those other ones, I, I won't kind of delve into what they are, but they they're in one sense not fantasy because they take place in a in a distant post nuclear future, and so because of that, you don't have the the writing crutch, if you will, if, well, magic, or, you know, the, the ring of power did this, or a dwarf comes along, or you know, alternate world and speculative fiction in that way. So in that sense, I did gain a lot of the, the skills that it takes place to just describe, you know, you're limited by the real world. Now, what's different here is that it's the past real world instead of the future real world. But like I said, right. I know that world so well. I mean, I, I, I don't just know it from like book knowledge, meaning other people writing about it. I have written, I've read the original sources. In fact, in lots of cases, I've translated those sources into English uh, for my work. So I know those Greek and Latin writers of the ancient world. So it just kind of naturally comes out, I suppose, more, more than having to kind of like pull it out or dig it out. It just comes flooding out for me anyway. Yeah, that's great. Um, so I guess I should have maybe said speculative because it's more of like a dystopian. Your your other series, your other yeah, so the, was, yeah, it's called the Shavice kind of, trilogy, and it, that one is set. Yes, it's kind of dystopian. It's set in the, um, in like I said, a post nuclear future in which everybody in the four hundred years from now has forgotten about Christianity, and then the characters that are living a really kind of a medieval type lifestyle. So it's similar, it's kind of sword and horse lifestyle because they're post nuclear okay. people. And they discover a Bible and it's like, well, what's this book? Who's this God? What what ancient religion is this? So in that sense, it's very parallel because you have this kind of, you know, big world that's existing, but no one knows about this new faith and they begin to explore what, what it's all about. So that part of it is very similar. And so, yeah, it's dystopian or it's speculative. It's it's kind of, I mean, bo both of these trilogies, because the one I'm doing now will be a trilogy too. Um they both are adventurous. They both have 
chases and rescues and high drama and uh, swashbuckling. I, mean, I, I like that word and I, I use it happily. <laughs> <laughs> it seems a little bit old fashioned, like Zorro or something, but I like those stories. I often liken it to like yeah. a, um, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark or, or something like that, where it's just this Indiana Jones adventure and both the previous trilogy and this one have those elements for sure. That's great. So can you maybe talk more about your familiarity with the ancient church and not only how you've become familiar with it, but is there anything you want to share that you've learned about it that that comes out in this book? Yeah, that's a good question, Allison. I, I, I will. Um, I mean, the, the how I know about it, I've, I've mentioned already, which is just that it's my professional field. Like it's my, it's my academic training. Uh, it's my subject that I've written on from my master's thesis and my doctoral dissertation all the way through articles and books and presentations and things that, you know, nerdy professors like me do with our time. <laughs> Not to mention teaching, too. I should probably also mention that um, where, where a lot of this stuff is when you teach in front of students and you tell them, like I taught Western Civ and I taught church history and I explained mm -hmm. who these ancient people were. And I, I had to think often in, in those years of teaching, well, how is this relevant? to an 18 or 19 year old? How, how, how is this right. going to connect, you know? So that knowledge base and, and, and you can tell when their eyes come alive and you can tell when they're, they're getting it. And so I'm drawing on both teaching and scholarship and then weaving it into a really exciting story. I hope. Yeah. And also have you, um, I don't know if you mentioned this already, you visited the Holy land and, um, yeah. Areas in in Italy, in Rome, yeah, or yeah, all over. Can you I talk mean, about so your travels. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So it's kind of a. I mean, a saga like this is kind of a sweeping story, and the the three books of uh, the Christian Empire uh, trilogy will take the characters all over the place. And the first one is primarily in Rome, but of course, the Roman Empire was big, and you mentioned the Holy Land, and that's part of a future uh, installment. But uh, okay. yeah, so I mean, I took. I took students there. I was professor, not just vacations, but like study abroad tours. And I know that feeling of kind of, I, I, I used to love it when we'd come up out of the subway in Rome and I'd go out ahead of the students and I would turn around and look at them as they passed me exiting the subway because I oh, knew yeah. they were going to come out and suddenly the Colosseum was going to be there. And I right. enjoyed that feeling of like, ah, and their eyes would go wide. And so- <laughs> That sense of, of the Mediterranean world and kind of what its culture is like and what it looks like and what it smells like and what it feels like is all woven into the story because I've not just studied it, but I've kind of lived it as a teacher and professor, I guess. Right. That's good. Um, so the emperor, Constantine, plays a large role in this book. What do you want listeners to know about him? Yeah, he's a he's a major character, although not the pr protagonist. So you, you do have a hero and right. a heroine, and maybe we'll talk about about them. But yes, of course, he's a major figure. He's this um, historical figure who was the one who th thought to himself, maybe instead of persecuting Christians, I should think about adopting this faith, and maybe their God really is better than mine, or maybe Jesus is more victorious than Jupiter. And so he was the first emperor, not the first Christian, of course, to, not the first person to convert, but the first emperor to convert. And so because of that, it, it just makes this period 
this historical period very pivotal because he was in a position to you know spread that more broadly than the average person would be so what an important part of uh of history what the fourth century ad yeah so do you want to talk about the heroine heroine also yeah well they're they're a lot of fun they're they are uh <laughs> two characters that i have enjoyed watching their story un- unfold and i'm still watching it because in a few days I'll, i will turn in book two to the publisher and it's 177,000 words and uh oh wow <laughs> yeah, yeah these are big fat novels but my, and my agent was teasing me about that recently. And I, I said, well, big history requires big stories. And he, he understood mm-hmm. that. But yeah, and then the third one will come out too. So I'm watching this, these characters. I mean, you, you, you know, you understand you're in the world of historical fiction. So you know how you sort of just see them come alive. <laughs> and, Absolutely, uh, yeah. And you're like, whoa, slow down. I got to get that down. I'm a stenographer here. <laughs> Talk so fast. Right. You know? And that's a blast. And uh yeah. Do you want me to describe the, the, the two characters? Or? Yeah, go ahead and describe them. All right. Well, so the the hero, the, the male you know protagonist, his name is Rex. That's a nickname given to him, which means king, because his, he, he's actually a, a Germanic figure. He's a what you might call a barbarian, not that he's like crude in that way, but he was part of the society that was outside the Roman Empire. But increasingly mm. in the fourth century, they were the ones coming into the army. And so these Germans, we would say, were being recruited as mercenaries to serve in the Roman army. And so he's one of those. And he's kind of a, I think of him like a Jason Bourne, if you put that figure back in the Roman Empire. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) He's like a special forces kind of guy that the Romans did have some of those. And Constantine sends him on ahead to spy out the city of Rome as he's going to invade it and fight his enemy there. And so Rex, on his way down, and as he comes to Rome, meets the heroine, who is um, a Christian, the the daughter of a senator, aristocratic daughter in Rome. Her name is Flavia. And uh, Mm -hmm. she's upscale. She comes from that world, but she's not hoity-toity. She she has a different value system. Uh, She's a Christian, like I said. She belongs to the Little C Catholic Church, the ancient Little C Catholic Church. And right. she has a, you know, she has a relationship, obviously, with this big, strong warrior that comes into her world who doesn't worship her God. He's he's respectful, but he he doesn't have much interest in it. Uh, he's got his own gods. He's got the Germanic gods, or he's got Hercules as a patron. So mm-hmm. there is a a a religious discussion that's happening alongside the adventure, alongside the chemistry and romance that they have. So it's a very complicated situation that I think many, many men and women will understand. I'm attracted to this person. He doesn't share my faith. What do I do with that? So that's a dynamic there for sure. Now I know you have so much knowledge of the ancient church and the Roman empire just from your work, but was there anything you had to research once you started writing that you discovered, like, I, I don't know what this would be like, or um, did you have any extra work to do there or no? Well, I mean, I did. Yes, for sure. So like, I didn't just like, you know, open my laptop and start typing in the sense that I'm just going to draw from, from my memory banks or what's out there. I mean, if you saw my study, you'd see that I had books piled all over the place, not just uh, <laughs> secondary, but primary sources, you know, the, the original writings. I'm yeah. Not 
course, the actual documents, but, you know, translations or Greek or Latin texts that, that kind of give you the background. So, yeah, I, I, did I discover anything new? Um, probably not brand new, but I became more aware of the continuities. Maybe that's how I'll put it. The continuities between what it means to be a Christ follower today and what that means for an ancient person. You might say, well, they're, they're so different, you know, their, their situation and they, you know, they wore, we imagine, you know, green leaves in their hair and sandals and togas. And we kind of think of them as they, they didn't really, but that's, you know, that no. we picture the otherness, right? We picture them as being other, but when you really get into the spiritual life, you say, wow, if you're a Christian today, and, I, and by which I mean, you could be a Protestant, you could be a Roman Catholic, you can be a Pentecostal, you can be an Evangelical, you could be a Presbyterian, you could be a Baptist, Eastern Orthodox. I mean, there's many kinds, but there's something at the yeah. core, right? And and that's what I discovered is the way in which this story transcends time and space and situation to become a spiritual saga that modern believers can appreciate even though the characters are living 1,700 years ago. There's enough common ground to make it work. Wow, that's amazing. I I love that. Um, that's part of the purpose of this podcast is to kind of show what, why stories about history just draw us to them and um, what they show us about the lives we're living today. So. Yeah. Well, and I get that, Allison. And you know what? I think in in a certain way, uh, a story which is set within Christian history has a special power to do that because most things of history, like, for example, the Roman Empire or pilgrims or, you know, castles and knights, yeah. they've disappeared. But in this case, if this is, you know, the, the Christian faith and all of its broad and global reach is something that still exists from when it started 2000 years ago. And that's a, an aspect of history that is fun to write about because it's still living. It's still a practiced part of history today, but it has its roots 2000 years ago, which is pretty cool. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, so I'm sure you had to do a lot of writing when you were pursuing your PhD. Um, but how did you become interested in writing fiction? Have, has that always been something you wanted to do? Or did it come on later? Tell us about kind of your history with writing. Yeah, well, you know, I would say in one sense, it's something that I've always wanted to do just because I've always been that creative kid that came up with stuff. You know, it was just always bubbling out of me. And sometimes that was like drawing pictures when I was a kid or playing, you know, sort of the 80s uh, stereotype. I'm playing Dungeons and Dragons and so you're making up stories that happened in the context of heroic past. And so I, yeah. in that sense, I've, I've just been someone that has bubbled forth with, with creativity. But I didn't set out in a sort of career way or something to be a novelist. Uh, I, I set out uh, to sort of pursue the typical career that you have in academe, although at the moment I'm not presently in the teaching world, but in the uh, Christian publishing world, but I still have my, mm -hmm. my foot in, in that world. So how did it come that I wrote a novel? You know, here I, I'd say I know no disrespect to the mothers among us, but as a male, it seems funny to say, but I just 
found myself in a sense pregnant with a story, you know, and that's a metaphor, (laughs) (laughs) obviously. Yes. But it's a good one because we talk about creativity and fertility and bringing forth and laboring and struggling and then having something that comes forth in a kind of messy state and you have to like shape this messy little thing into something more uh, reasonable that you can bring into society. And and maybe that metaphor works. I hope I'm not, um, you know, speaking out of turn. <laughs> About pregnancy. No, I, I think it's fine. I mean, yeah. I've I've done both. You get it. Um, had had actual babies and also given birth to books, so I know what you mean. Oh, good. Okay, and you know you know it more deeply and more in a more bodily way than I do. But that that answers right. the question. Is like, why did you become a novelist? Well, what else was I going to do with the baby? It was in there. It had to come out, and uh, I've just pursued it with the joy, as you know, from writing and also mothering. It's a scary and joyful task, but it's one that you wouldn't miss. So what did you, what did you write first? What did you start writing first? Did you start, um, I imagine you had to write nonfiction first for your, for academia. Yes. And then can you tell us about the path to writing and releasing your first, your first book, your first fiction book? Sure. So you're right. I, I, you know, as you come out of your dissertation and you get a job in a, as a professor, yeah, you, you conceive of yourself as having the job of being a writer, not really for commercial purposes, but for scholarship and academe. And so you write articles in journals that nobody reads except your fellow professors, but you, you still do it because you care about that. And those are technical and historical and, you know, it's that kind of writing. And then something that I did, because I really do want my writing to, to go to people more than just the eggheads like me, uh, who like <laughs> history from that very technical way. So I wrote a couple of nonfiction books, uh, like, for example, Getting to Know the Church Fathers was the first nonfiction book that I published. And it was designed to yeah. say to modern Christians, well, you know, who were these church fathers and mothers? And why do they matter? And why, what did they believe and what did they stand for and why should I think about them? And so it was kind of a primer on the ancient church for the interested but not aware uh, person about their Christian past. And one of the things I try to do in those nonfiction books, I did a couple of others as well, is to introduce the modern person, and I guess I mean they're the, the modern person of faith, to their spiritual forefathers and foremothers and those who ran the race before. And so that was the first thing, but that's a natural segue into fiction because you have this knowledge base. And so you just kind of transpose it into a different type or a different genre and convey it that way as well. Now, the, right. the, the fiction trilogy that I wrote first, like we were saying earlier in the podcast, is not actually historical. It's speculative mm-hmm. because it's like you said, a, it's a dystopian. Although I will say dystopian usually implies that it's this sort of torn down world and right. kind of Mad Max and desert and everybody's you know, like wearing scavenged clothes and things like that. So this one actually, you've seen it, you know how they kind of like, you know, have an eye patch and they run around in Jeeps. and Yeah. <laughs> the, what was it? When you were describing it, it reminded me of the book of Eli. Oh, yeah. Uh, that, that film. But maybe it's not quite as... um forlorn yeah, I don't know. yeah no that's good it's interesting book of eli is very much like it and i and i have to say i have the 
emails to prove I started talking about and proposing and writing this book before Book of Eli came out, even though Oh, that's great. It did then. I was like, wait, that's my idea. Like the ancient book that you like save. <laughs> and, but you're right. It is more right. forlorn. And so this is where I'm I'm going with that, Allison, is that um the the forlorn nature of that kind of dystopian world is not what the Shavice trilogy is, because the people in okay. that book have gotten past the immediate degradation of war and have, in a sense, mm. rewound history and kind of reclimbed back to kind of chivalrous, sword, horse, castle, sort of medieval-esque type society. And so it has that feel more than it has the feel of like, you know, running around like, you know, nuclear waste and fallout or something like that. So right. okay. that then is a segue. All of that is to say it's not a huge uh, switch to move from that kind of sword and horse adventure story to one that you can still have swords and horses in adventure story set back in the Roman empire. There's very similar. Those themes are, are, can be transposed from one future historical setting to one in the past as well. If that makes sense. Yeah, sure. Can you, so how did you, how did you get that first, um, contract for that first book in that, yeah, ser- well, in that that's an trilogy story so shavice is this made-up word that i used and i kind of wish i had picked something else because nobody can really pronounce it when they see it and i just didn't know <laughs> that when i wrote my first book i would probably make up a name now that's more pronounceable when you see the letters but shavice was designed to be as if the future people their language had kind of morphed a little bit but they were saying the german word for switzerland which is schweizer uh, mm. And so it's set in Switzerland, although they don't know it's Switzerland. They just know they're in mountains that they don't know are called the Alps, but right. we call them the Alps. And so it's this Alpine Swiss setting. And, you know, it's interesting. I mean, I published that trilogy with Crossway. Crossway is right here in Wheaton, Illinois, where I live. And so I go to church with a lot of these folks, including the publisher whose daughter, actually, the publisher at Crossway, uh, the head guy, the sort of founding family, his daughter was in my small group. And Crossway doesn't do a ton of fiction, but they, through the daughter, who was my friend, she talked to her dad and said, hey, dad, my, you know, Brian's got this thing and it's in Switzerland. And, and the dad uh, and the mom, who is involved as well, were like, oh, that, that was interesting because they love Switzerland. I think maybe they were there back in the uh. like Francis Schaeffer days or something like that. If I recall. So to answer that your question, there was a little bit of an inside track in that way, but still you have to make the case for it. And it went through that whole process, but they liked it. So crossway, that's a little bit more of a dabbling in something that's not primarily what they do. Whereas Ravel, who published is publishing The Conqueror, which is coming out right now, uh, they're they're a fiction house. Mm-hmm. I mean, they that's what they do. And they yeah. were aware of my previous trilogy, but but Ravel is much more involved in Christian fiction. And so anyway, I'm with them now. So it's fantastic. And they're a great partner. Both of those publishers are great partners that I have just have so much respect for and have appreciated the excellence of the work of their team. Yeah, that's great. Now, did you um, secure an agent before the series with Crossway or was it after? Yeah, I, th- I think, let me, I, I don't remember the exact chronology, but 
I do believe that the first trilogy with Crossway was before I had an agent. And my agent now, Steve Lobby, is uh, someone I really mm-hmm. respect and know uh, is so well regarded in the industry. So he was able to open doors. Maybe you know him, Steve, Steve Lobby. Not personally, but you're right. He's well-respected. Everyone speaks highly of him. As they should. He's kind of a, you know, just a big wig in the industry, and I'm just small potatoes. But um, I'm glad to be (laughs) part of his team. And so he opened some doors and connections. You know, that's what agents do. And if your listeners are thinking, well, you know, I want to be published or I want to maybe someday, you you should think about getting an agent. How do you do that? Well, it turns out Steve not trying to plug him here, but this is the resource. Steve Lobby every year, L-A-U-B-E, publishes the Christian Writers Market Guide. So 2021 mm-hmm. is, I think, probably out now. And it helps your listeners. They would be able to find out who are the agents, who who publishes what? Why would I send this book to this one? No, they don't do that. Send this proposal to that publisher. This is more what they do. What's their address? Glad you asked. Here it is. So that resource, I'm just offering that because I think your listeners are probably people who are aspiring authors and the Christian writers. Market some of them. Probably some, some, some of them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I am. Um, that would be an interesting question for my audience to know how many of them are aspiring authors versus just lovers of historical fiction. Yeah. Well, everybody's an aspiring author in one way, right? I mean, you, you talk on an airplane and you strike up a conversation and so many people will say, yeah. oh, you know, I always wanted to write a, a novel or in my spare time, and I'm kind of embarrassed, but in my spare time, I actually, you know, and so there's <laughs> lots of people who, now they may never actually, well, they may not want to face the rejection that usually comes with that uh, saga right. getting published, <laughs> right? You know, but so many people have stories just bursting forth from them. It, it is interesting to see that. Yeah, it is. You're right. Everyone I mean, we all love story. We're all drawn to it. Yeah. Telling it, listening, telling stories, listening to stories. Mm-hmm. I think listening to stories is part of the human experience. Listening and telling, I mean, that goes back to probably the invention of fire. You know, I mean, as soon as mm-hmm. the first guy, the first caveman figured out how to rub two sticks together, they probably cooked a piece of meat and then suddenly they were telling stories. And it's been happening among human communities ever since. And so we who are authors, are participating in just uh, something that's it's age old and it's primordial and it's 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 in our bones to to hear a story and to be excited about that and to to you know the story of of you know your ancestor who went forth and fought the mastodon and you know there's just we've been telling stories the Greeks and the and Homer and his journey and you know uh, Perseus rescuing Andromeda was chained to the rock. And there's just a million stories. And then the Bible and the Old Testament is full of stories. And I think when we write historical novels today, we're not doing something new. We're doing something that is really essential to the human race. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. So what are you hoping readers will get out of your books? Well, first and foremost, I will be honest and say entertainment. I, that might sound like, you know, a funny thing for this sort of no, professor. 
That's a good thing. <laughs> I'm glad you think so, because I mean, people might think, well, he's a professor, so he's he's secretly trying to teach us, and he's going to like dump his course notes <laughs> into a novel, and the character will stop and then give his like two o'clock lecture, you know, out of the mouth of the ancient Roman. <laughs> no, I hope not. <laughs> no, who wants to read that? You know. Now, so entertainment, like I really do want to sweep these characters up. I mean, to sweep the readers up in the story of the characters. Mm -hmm. And if if you are not a person who says, I'm going to read a chapter before bed, and then you have to read three because you can't put it down, I haven't done my job. Um, right. You know, that's, that's why you read stories. And I want them to take that away. I, I think often of the statement from the poet, Robert Frost, I think is the one who said, no tear in the author, no tears in the reader. And there are times mm -hmm. when I'm writing and I get a little choked up at what I'm like, wow, that's, that's very human. That's very powerful. These characters that I love that, that brings a tear to my eye and that has to come through. So you, you're not just excited and thrilled. You're also, you know, driven to emotion and you're, you lose your sense of place and time and you are just swept away into excitement. And I think for a Christian novel in particular, that even though bad things have to happen because that's what's real, there also has to be persevering hope and belief that in the end, in the end, and that may be the final end, things will be righted by God. And so I want to speak to the human experience and take modern people up out of their present day environment and sweep them off to a different time in a different place. And if you learn some stuff along the way, which historical fiction readers, I believe, want, like you don't pick up that genre unless you want to learn something too. I hope that will right. happen. Right. But mostly I want to sweep you into a story that thrills you and grieves you and angers you and makes you fall in love <laughs> all at the same time, for sure. Mm. Yeah, that's wonderful. Um, so you, we touched on this earlier, but I have a feeling you might have more to say about it. So I will ask you the question that I ask every author that I interview. How do you think learning about history through story helps us approach life in the present? Yeah, that it, it, that's one of the great things that history can do because history is the examination of human beings. And human beings are fundamentally the same, no matter what context you put them in. Like we're all heroes and we are all sinners and we are all spiritual people who seek God and we are all fallen people who run away from God. And we are prone to love and uh, family and we are prone to cruelty and war <laughs> and that doesn't matter if it's 2020 2020 or if it's you know the fourth century ad so i think what history can do is it can it can retell the human story and make a point because you're interested in people from a different time but then you connect to the sameness of their emotions. Like when a, when a mother is kneeling at a, at a, a grave of their child weeping in the grass at the tombstone, that doesn't matter if it's a thousand years ago or yesterday, that emotion is the same, right? right? It's powerful. And stories do that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think what you said about earlier about the faith being the same too is so, is so true. It's just, it's something I hadn't thought about. 
it transcends. I mean, and there were things that were different. And I think that will be interesting to modern readers to say, oh, wait, they, they practice their faith. Okay, so they went down into catacombs where people were buried. Well, like, why did they do that? Why did they think the burial of the body was so important? Oh, because because mm-hmm. of resurrection, because of hope, because those were places not of darkness, but of, of uh, living on past a very difficult life into a future that is glorious. And so you, you learn things by the differentness, even as you also perceive the sameness. And I don't know if you're aware of this, or maybe this could be said to help your your listeners understand this book, but it doesn't actually take place just to make the point. It doesn't take place in the first century AD, which was Bible times. Jesus lived in the first century, the apostles after him, Paul and Peter and James and John there. That's the first century. That's like the book of Acts in the Bible. But this one is in the fourth century, which is 300 years later. So I think your listeners will want to sort of understand, okay, so the faith that they're living out is not quite as primitive. That's not a negative term, but it's not as primitive or it's not as newborn as it was in the book of Acts. Oh, instead of having house churches, they're starting to build churches or their theology has developed. It's new understanding of the Trinity is unfolding. And so the story has a, a thicker kind of Christianity than than just the first sketches that were being written in the first century. And yet there's a fuller, richer story or a fuller, richer portrait still to come over the ages. So it's a step along the way in the timeline of church history. Right. That's interesting. I did I did know that from reading the description, but um, that's a good point to bring out that it's it's not the early church. Well, it's not the, not the earliest know, the first generation early of the church. Yeah, and right? readers. The I, ones who, who knew people who had seen Jesus. Yes, that's exactly <laughs> right. And I like to mention that because readers might expect biblical fiction and they might wish that or think that it's going to be the kind of story where, you know, the Apostle Paul said, and it's not actually that, but it's still the same world they were in because it's the fourth century. It's still the Roman Empire. So it's the same right. and different. Yeah. Okay, so to finish up, who is your favorite historical fiction author, and what's one of the best historical novels you've read this year? Well, um, those would be two two separate answers, I think. Um, my my one of my favorite historical fiction authors is Stephen Lawhead, and oh, yeah. I especially like his Byzantium, which is a big fat novel set in a little bit later period than mine, but set in the same environment of the Mediterranean and specifically Byzantium or Constantinople. And I just think he does Mm -hmm. a great job of this kind of creating this sweeping saga that sort of traverses a large epic landscape and kind of takes you from here to there and introduces you to the people and cultures of history. So I like that. I like it better than his Patrick novel, where I think he he had a little bit he had his St. Patrick, it was a little too close to the Druids, which was like a pagan religion, the Druidism, than I think probably the real Patrick was. He kind of has, has Patrick as this like Druid priest who kind of melds it with Christianity, but it's still a really good story of St. Patrick. Um, okay. Current historical fiction, I'm, I'm, I'm rereading a lot of, and I'm loving the James Missioner novels. 
uh, hmm. which is just historical fiction to the nth degree because he'll start with like geology. <laughs> you know, he doesn't even start with people. <laughs> he starts with like, right. well, this continent moved over here and then a fault line developed. And then, so he picks a place, as people <laughs> probably know if they know Mishner. I like, I just read his centennial where he picks this random spot in Colorado and then tells the story, you know, the earth and then the mastodons, you know, and the, and then the cavemen. And then he kind of moves up to the native American people that were there. And then the code of the, the pioneers and the, the gold miners and the ranchers and takes every, takes you right up through history all the way to the, to the present. So I like those missioner novels because you just get a great sense of the place in this case, America. And recently I had to bring a car. My son's car was in college out in Los Angeles and I had to drive across the country and it was just amazing mm. to think about this country of ours and the pioneers and the settlers and the indigenous people who were here first and just all the kaleidoscope of lives and people that make up this great nation of ours. And um, so, yeah. yeah, historical fiction can really give you a sense of like what it was like long ago. Right. I get the sense that you like kind of, um, grand sweeping sagas <laughs> yes because, <laughs> with yeah, adventure uh -huh. you know why because i was born in 1970 so i was seven years old when a little kid from a farm on tatooine was swept up in a saga oh. that took him to the space <laughs> empire and he rescued a princess and he fell in with a scoundrel with a pistol on his hip and uh they flew around in spaceships and an evil dark lord was looking to take them down and um the, the wise mentor so it's it's the um it's the the hero's journey uh that is right. classically in place there but um yeah I, that's what i cut my teeth on indiana jones and star wars and i've always loved those right. and, and also literary because i would read like as a kid i would read like ivanhoe and the mm -hmm. king arthur sagas so i loved them also in their literary form as well as their hollywood form and if i can contribute to that type of a story sort of the three musketeers and swashbuckling and so forth then i love it let's do it yeah that's great so, Brian, it was great to talk to you. Can you tell me where listeners can purchase The Conqueror? Yeah, well, I mean, I think probably Amazon is the easiest place for that. So just go on Amazon and, and search for the word Conqueror. Uh, or my last name, we'll pull it up, which is spelled L-I-T-F-I-N, L-I-T-F-I-N, Brian, B-R-Y-A-N. You'll see it. They'll see it there. I also have a website, which is, is that. So it's just brianlitfin.com. B-R-Y-A-N-L-I-T-F-I-N. And uh, they'll learn a little bit about me there and you can link to the to the books I've written there. Yes. So for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I will link in the show notes to those. And what about social media? Is there, what's the best place to follow you? You know, you, I'm just like, are you active? Not really. I mean, Facebook. Yeah. Find me on Facebook. That'd be fine. Yeah. I have to admit, I don't, I don't really tweet too much or you know, Instagram. And once you start to get in past that, then it's like, well, that's what my kids are doing. <laughs> so TikTok, yeah. you won't find me on TikTok. You know, no. YouTube channel. Uh, not there either. So, 
Sorry, I'm just an old-fashioned guy. <laughs> That's okay. You're you're too busy um, writing epic novels. There's so. truth to that. There's truth to that. If you spend all your time cultivating your image, you can't actually produce something that is why people would be interested in your image. So just go right. make a great story, and I won't have to tweet about it. You'll already know. <laughs> yep. Yeah. That's right. But I'll direct people to Facebook Thank in you. case they want to um, find you. Good. Okay. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today, Brian. Well, it was great to talk to you. Yes, Allison, thanks. You're a great host and so mellifluous in the way you speak and just uh, a joy to be with you today. Thank you. Thank you very much. Oh, guys, that is just one of the nicest compliments I've ever had. I had to leave it in. I just want to add here, make sure you visit the show notes at alisontreat.com because it's just full of links um, where to find... Brian's book, where to find Brian's website. Um, I always just fill it up with links and information that you will really want to know if you're interested in the conversation that we had today. So um, in in addition to that, please, if you're on Instagram, visit my Instagram because on Thursdays, I usually hop on there in my stories and um, talk to you guys in my mellifluous voice about the podcast and about um, my writing life. And it's an opportunity to connect with me and maybe find out more about the other things I'm doing and also connect about the podcast and let me know what you think. Also, if you're enjoying this podcast, please leave a star rating and review. I would appreciate that so much. It's been great being with you today. I love bringing these podcasts to you each week, and I hope you're enjoying them too. I'm going to leave you with simply the quote that Brian mentioned by Robert Frost, who said, no tears in the writer, no tears in the reader. So I hope you find some historical fiction that brings a tear to your eye this week, my friends. 